The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. And today we don't have a children's church, so kids, I hope you will listen in carefully to this important story about who Jesus is and a response to Jesus that magnifies who he is and actually serves to give us great joy And as we think about the theme of this message, you might notice the title, Simple Desperate Faith. You think about desperation, it's not something that we tend to drift toward in our conversation or in our own lives. We don't like to feel desperate. We don't want to be desperate. We want to have all that we need at hand. We want to have our relationships intact. We just don't want to feel desperate. At least, I certainly don't. And engaging with others, you, you, you tend to see that this is not something that we're usually comfortable with. Interestingly, the theme of desperation you'll actually see again in Luke's gospel. We've seen it already with the centurion. We're going to see it with the prodigal son. And we're also going to see it here in today's story, the story of desperation, a story of simple, desperate faith. Let's just get our bearings real quick, if you will, with me and, and get our, our, find out where we're at here in Luke's gospel. A lot has transpired in Jesus' ministry up to this point. We're in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 and following. A lot has transpired in Jesus' ministry up to this point. Since he began his ministry in Luke chapter 3 and being commissioned by his father and being baptized by John, he was led out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted, and it was there that he demonstrated he was the true son of God. He fulfilled what Adam could not do. He succeeded where Abraham failed. He succeeded where Israel as a nation had failed. And after this event, after this temptation, he successfully completed this temptation without bowing and yielding to Satan's wiles. He then commences his ministry, a ministry that would consist of teaching and preaching, a ministry that would consist of healing major and minor illnesses, a ministry of calling and gathering disciples, a ministry of exercising demons and relieving demon-possessed people of those unclean spirits. It was a ministry of raising dead people to life. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, it was a ministry of demonstrating his powerful deity by calming a storm, showing that he is the God over nature. And after that amazing, fear-inspiring event, Jesus goes on to heal yet another demoniac, demonstrating his authority over the spiritual realm by delivering a man from the clutches of demon possession. We saw that last week. And in this glorious deliverance, this happened southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And our text today says at the beginning, it says, when Jesus returned, and we have to ask, returned where? Well, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's now on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and that is where we are now located in this story. He's gone back over after having healed this demoniac, and this is where our story commences. We have our geographical setting, so now let's move into the the text. It says that the crowd welcomed him before they were waiting for him. Well, Well, why? Well, Jesus has grown in popularity in this particular region. He's been healing. A lot of things have been happening in Capernaum. A lot of healings have occurred there, and so his popularity is growing. People want to be near Jesus. People want to be healed by Jesus. They want to hear his teaching as well. But all over, they want to be near Jesus Christ. He has gained 
much popularity, and someone specifically was waiting for him. And we are introduced here in verse 41 by, to a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. He was one of the leaders in the area, one of the religious leaders. And it's interesting because his response to Jesus, he would have been in charge of handling the logistics and organization of the, the synagogue service. That would have been his role as ruler of the synagogue. That's what that term expresses. He would have been in charge of all the various administration of the synagogue services. And his response to Jesus is remarkable in light of how the other religious leaders have responded to Jesus up to this point. The scribes and the Pharisees, for example, we know they are not exceedingly excited about Jesus or his style of ministry. Just a little while ago, Jesus walked into a synagogue and he healed a man with a withered hand. And you might think, hey, what a wonderful, gracious expression of love and compassion towards someone who is suffering. Jesus heals this man and what a wonderful thing. Well, that wasn't the response that Jesus got from the others in the synagogue. Jesus' Jesus' work gets, garners this response. This is what Luke says. The Pharisees do not like it. And this, Luke summarizes their response, quote, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. That's Luke chapter 6, verse 11. Jesus' compassion and his care for the physical needs of others was infuriating the religious leaders. They cared only about their religious form, their tradition, and their ritual, rather than caring for people in real tangible ways. And so when Jesus comes along and starts practicing real righteousness right before their very eyes, it doesn't please them. It angers them, exposes their own hypocrisy. But here you have the ruler, this ruler of the synagogue who would have had the respect of the primary leaders in the town because of his position. Here you have the ruler of the synagogue going against the grain of the other religious leaders' response to Jesus, completely going against the grain. He is engaging with Jesus in a positive way. But not only that, but he is humbling himself before Jesus. Remember we saw this in the centurion? He, with his high social standing, this would have been a, uh, an interesting way to respond to Jesus. And here in this case, in terms of this ruler's uh, social standing and his religious, religious standing, this would have been a remarkable way to respond to Jesus. He is going to humble himself before Jesus. It says, in falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Given the underlying hostility that the religious leaders were starting to feel towards Jesus and uh, a religious sentiment that was starting to become more and more pal palpable among the religious leaders, their despise for Jesus becoming more and more obvious, this act of throwing himself before Jesus and begging him and crying out and pleading with Jesus to do something about his situation would have likely endangered his reputation and perhaps even his likelihood or livelihood in being moved out of his position as ruler of the synagogue. So he is taking an extraordinary risk by just laying himself out before Jesus and imploring him to help him. And the question is, is why take such a risk? I mean, why not protect your reputation and your livelihood? That's the natural response that we would feel. Well, the answer is what we just talked about at the beginning of today's message. The answer is desperation. Desperation. It says why he did this. Verse 42, for he had an only 
daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. If you had a little girl who meant the world to you, and that little girl is deathly ill, and you know there is someone in the area who has a reputation of successful healings, you would be compelled to cast aside any care of what others think about you and throw yourself before this man to implore him for help. This act also demonstrates that Jairus, unlike the religious leaders, is believing in Jesus at this point. He is believing in the Lord at some level. He believes that Jesus can heal his daughter. Again, this would have gone, gone against the grain of the way the religious leaders responding to Jesus. Just think about John 9, for example. Jesus heals a, a blind man from birth. And the Pharisees refused to believe that Jesus is the one who did it, even though the evidence is clear. In other places in the New Testament, when Jesus is clearly healing people right before the eyes of the religious leaders, they then ask immediately after that, show us a sign. I mean, you couldn't be much more blind than they were to the work that Jesus was doing. Their faith was hindered from embracing Jesus and all that he was and all that he was doing, primarily because they loved the praise of men. Here you have an indication that this love of the praise of men is being dislodged from Jairus' life because now he's throwing himself down before Jesus to get Jesus to help him. He has cast aside all care and concern about reputation, even a potential loss of his livelihood, to get Jesus to help him because he is desperate. The fact that Jairus comes to Jesus to heal his daughter is an indication that true faith is starting to emerge in this unlikely man. But it was desperation that drove him to Jesus. So Jesus goes with him and goes to his daughter. That's what that phrase, and Jesus went, indicates and, and communicates. And you could just imagine, you know, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the place of this man. You could just imagine the relief. Your, your daughter is dying. She's on the brink of death. It's been 12 wonderful years. She's your only daughter. She is on, she's on the precipice of leaving you forever. And, and here's a man who can heal her. And he said, yes, he's coming. Everybody get out of the way. Here, Jesus is going to heal my daughter. And just the relief finally, oh Lord, thank you. Oh, the relief just probably just wafted over him. And he was just Excited to get Jesus to his home. He believes Jesus can heal her. He has made the request, and now Jesus has complied with the, with the request. Now, again, Jesus is pretty popular, right? Not with the religious leaders, but with the people by and large. And this word, it's interesting here, this word used here to say, it's translated in the ESV as pressed. He, the, the crowd is pressing upon him. He's, he's popular. They, they want to be with him. They want to get near him. They want to talk to him. They want to see some healing. They want to get some healing. And they're pressing him upon Jesus. The word for press there is used only elsewhere in the parable of the soils. And it's the word that is translated rightly in those parable of the soils of choking out the word. When it, it's growing up and the weeds come along and they choke out that word. That's the word here that's being used and translated as press. The the crowd is choking Jesus, you might say. It's a mosh pit, all right? Let's be honest. It's a mosh pit. And uh, Jesus is right in the thick of it. And um, he's getting just pressed upon by this group of people. That's, that's the scene as he's walking, trying to make his way to uh, Jairus' house. Well, there is a 
woman in the crown. And this woman, it says in the text, it says in verse 43, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And this discharge of blood would have likely been a hemorrhage from her uterus. And the idea seems to be that there's, this was an ongoing, unceasing flow of blood. And ladies, you know that this would have been uncomfortable. This would have been embarrassing. It is likely that she would have had a hard time keeping this a secret because it would have been an ailment that would limited her social life in a significant way. It would have made her weak and anemic. And most importantly, it would have made her perpetually ceremonially unclean, according to Leviticus 15. So her life since the hemorrhage began would have been significantly limited by this ailment and generally miserable. That's what we're, we're supposed to take away from this. This discharge of blood for 12 years. Imagine that. Uh, there's no remedy in sight. And to add insult to injury, she had spent all of her living on physicians, but to no avail. And now you might have a comment in your, or a mark, a note in your Bibles that indicates that this phrase, spent all of her living on physicians, is not in Luke's original. Mark has something like it. Uh, it. It was likely that it was omitted by uh, or added by later copyists because as you're reading this, is, or I should say it's likely it was omitted by later copyists because as you're reading this as a copyist, you're thinking, no, Luke would never indicate that. He would never throw all of his physician colleagues under the bus like that and suggest that she had spent all of her money but to no avail. And that's actually precisely why I think it should be included. Now, it is... Frankly, it's hard to tell textually, in terms of the textual tradition. It's hard to tell exactly what uh, is, is said here, but I tend to think that it was included because Luke is a disciple of Christ first and a physician second, and he wants the glory of Jesus to be displayed for all to see in this particular setting. The point of including that little phrase is to make it clear that no one can help this woman, and the other two parallel accounts make this clear. Whatever, however you take that phrase about the physician, the point is clear. She's done everything that she can to remedy this physical situation to no avail, no help whatsoever, no ceasing of the flow of blood, no fix to her ceremonial uncleanness, no fix to her social life. She's been suffering for 12 years and she spent everything. She has absolutely no place to turn. She is, by definition, what? Desperate, right? She's desperate. How else would you illustrate desperation except for right here like this lady? Now, let's just stop for a minute because there's an important detail for me that came up this last week that I had never seen before, actually. I want you to notice something here. Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. The woman has had the hemorrhage for 12 years. So in the same year that Jairus and his wife welcomed their little girl into the world with joy and hope and promise, the woman, whose life may have been blessed up to this point and happy, is now beset with a never-ending, life-disrupting disrupting affliction that cannot be healed. For 12 years, Jairus and his wife would have enjoyed their daughter, delighted in her, doted on her. But across town for the same 12 years, a woman 
who likely wasn't able to have any children of her own given her condition, was enduring a painful disease that would have ruined most of her life. It's not coincidental. Two things happening at the same time, just across town. Life is good. You got this new daughter, enjoying her for 12 years. Across town, you have a woman suffering for that same amount of time. Totally isolating her from people, from worship. Now, however, Jairus' daughter is dying. And the woman has no more money to spend on physicians. Jairus and the woman are now where? They are in the same desperate place by God's providence. You think this is all chance? You don't think God is working this all together? These aren't details we throw away. By God's providence, this is all coming together. You have two people brought together by God's providence in the same desperate place. The one presumably enjoying life up to this point, the other bearing with an affliction for the last 12 years, but here they are in the same place. They have nowhere to turn. They have no more earthly hope. Their expectation for joy in this life is gone. It's gone. So what does desperation drive you to do? It drives you to cast aside the fear of man and throw yourself before the one who is garnering the reproach of the religious leaders. It drives you to make your way through a dense crowd, not caring about what other people think of you, trying to make your way and then grab a hold of that Messiah. That's what desperation causes you to do. Matthew and Mark even tell us what the woman was thinking. Matthew 6, 21, quote, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. And it's not inappropriate for her to think that way either. She knows the stories of Jesus. She knows the reports. Jesus has been touching people with just, or healing people with just a touch, sometimes just a word, sometimes not even needing to be in the same proximity of the person. There's been a resurrection, a son given back to a a widow. She knows about all this. So she's believing the right things. He was relieving people of demon possession. All I need to do is touch him and I will be made well. Here's what's important. The woman's desperation enabled her to see Jesus for who he really is. Are we not blind to Jesus because we're not desperate for Jesus? That's the question. Here's what's interesting. By touching Jesus, had he been anyone else, she would have made him ceremonially ceremonially unclean. Her faith somehow enabled her to see past that and have the confidence that that ain't going to happen to this Jesus. He's different. He transcends these purity laws. You can't defile Jesus with a touch. Her faith is remarkable at this point. She's seeing Jesus for who he is because she's been led to desperation. Well, the beautiful thing is that this leads to relief. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. (laughs) What a relief. What power. This is healing creative power from the Son of God. That's what that is. Nothing less than healing creative power from the Creator himself ending her ailment. The same kind of relief that flowed over her is the relief that flowed over Jairus when Jesus said, I'll come with you. 
Now she's feeling relief. Now, Jesus makes a comment that others are going to find interesting and strange. Verse 45, Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And, and Peter makes a reasonable response, doesn't he? He, he? It's not as though Peter's acting in an unbelieving way. He's, he's making a reasonable response. He's like, uh, Jesus, you know, I just hate to point this out to you, but everyone's pressing in on you. There's a lot of people touching you, okay? And who knows how they're touching you? We don't even know all the touching that's happening. Grabbing your beard, grabbing your armpits, who knows? There's a lot of touching going on, okay? You, what, certainly, Jesus, you know that everybody is touching you. Quote, Master, the crowds surround you and you're, they're pressing in on you. And this, this was entirely, entirely reasonable for Peter to say. But Jesus responds to Peter by saying, I'm not talking about the touching that occurs when you're in physical proximity with people. I'm talking about a touching that occurs when someone reaches out for faith in the Messiah. There's only one person right here reaching out in desperate faith for the Messiah, and we need to know who that person is. Because Jesus had felt power go out from him, and I don't think that's incidental either. The defiling doesn't go into Jesus. The power comes from Jesus. The uncleanness doesn't flow into Jesus. The purity flows out of Jesus at all times, in all places, with all people. So Jesus recognizes that someone has touched him, that power has gone out from him. Well, now the woman can no longer conceal herself. You know, she, she could have just uh, said nothing. She, he, Jesus says, um, he says, uh, uh, Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceived that power had gone out, has power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. Prior to that, she could have just left and made her way home, skipping and happy all the way because of this great relief that Jesus had just given her. But she knows now that he can, she cannot escape Jesus' gaze. He can see right into her soul. So she falls down trembling before him and explains everything. Here, here's what happened, Jesus. I can't I I escape it. I was in great need. I had an, an ailment. I had this flow of blood. I, I touched you, and I was immediately healed. That's what happened, Jesus. And, and she might have been worried that Jesus would be upset for presuming upon him and presuming upon his power, but Jesus' response is both gentle and hope-giving. What does Jesus say? What's his response to this lady's admission to what had happened in the report of how she had been healed. Woman, you should have never touched me. That sounds an awful lot like who? Pharisees. Jesus is the gentle and gracious Messiah. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, what I want to point out with that phrase is I want you to look over just briefly. If in your Bible, you actually can turn over and you can see it on the exact same part of the page. Um, in verse 50, in the the story of the prostitute, Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Exact same phrase that's now translated here, your faith has made you well. That word for salvation, sozo, you, it can be translated either way. It can refer to physical deliverance or it can refer to spiritual deliverance, given the context. In the uh, story of the prostitute, it clearly has spiritual significance. Jesus is saying to the prostitute, your faith has saved you. You have 
peace with God, therefore go in peace. You are, you are saved. You are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. And I, given the juxtaposition with that story right next to it, I don't think we're led to believe that this is merely a physical healing. This woman has now been saved eternally. This was saving faith. The woman can now go and live her life in true peace. Her desperation enabled her to see Jesus for who he really is. She reached out in desperation for his help. This faith was therefore not temporary. It was saving. She found relief from her physical burden that day. And most important, as wonderful as that gift of healing was, it was a wonderful gift. Imagine you being blessed with that gift. If you are suffering in this way, it's a wonderful gift. We're not looking past that. No one's looking past that. But her hemorrhage in, had made her ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, but her sin had made her eternally unclean. And with one move, Jesus removes it all. With one touch, Jesus takes it all away. The ceremonial uncleanness, which was highlighting a greater uncleanness, namely her sin. It's been all removed. By removing her ceremonial uncleanness, he is signaling to her and to everyone, you've been saved. Go in peace. By a mere grasp of Jesus' garment, she was healed. Simple, desperate faith. Walking through the Gospels as we've been doing so far has really showed me once again that you don't need to go to Paul to be, have it made very clear that salvation is by faith alone. Jesus has been proving this over and over and over already up to this point in the Gospel of Luke. Salvation comes to those who realize they can't do anything anyway. All they can do is look to Jesus. That's all you can do. I'm devastated, lying on my back. I am annihilated in my sin or my current condition. All I can do is look to Jesus. Why would I ever put any hope in my works? How flimsy and how paltry they are. And so we're, we're being shown in the gospel of Luke itself that salvation is by faith alone. That is something that Paul will go on to affirm. We love the, the, gospel, uh, the gospel presented as it is in Romans and Galatians and elsewhere. But Jesus is making it very clear in his ministry that salvation is by faith. Now, this was a wonderful event, a glorious event, but it is overshadowed immediately by a very sad turn of events, isn't it? Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Apparently in God's providence, Jairus' desperation was not at peak yet. He needed to be brought even to a greater point of desperation. The woman had a hemorrhage, and so long as you had some money that perhaps give you the hope that could be healed by a physician, she did have some, some hope. Once you have no money, you have no place to turn. Jesus is on his way to heal your daughter. There's, there's hope. There's hope. And now she is dead. That's what the text tells us. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And we don't have any 
indication as to what Jairus was thinking, but I think we can give a little spec, uh, sanctified speculation. What would you be tempted to think of in this case? Whose fault was this? Was this the woman's fault for stopping Jesus? Was this Jesus' fault for stopping and, and taking up a conversation with her? We need to get to my daughter, and now she's gone. Well, Jesus responds with profound encouragement. He doesn't rebuke. He offers encouragement. He says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. The ruler of the synagogue had been believing in Jesus. He had been. That's why he asked Jesus to come to his house to heal his daughter. Jesus doesn't rebuke. He encourages, you were believing in me. Continue to believe in me, and she will be well. Actually, the word there again is, she will be saved. So likely signaling here more than just physical resurrection. Jesus saying to this man, I don't just heal sickness. I raise the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. So they continue to the ruler's house. They make their way. Hope again welling up in Jairus, I expect here. Jesus speaking an encouraging word, not a word of rebuke. And when they get to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James. There's going to be some, in, some intense discipleship happening here. It's kind of like when a pastor might take uh, a pastoral hopeful with him to go do hospital visit, visitations. Well, this is going to be one heck of a hospital visitation that uh, these guys are never going to forget. Matthew and Mark's version of the story tell us that these people were already at the house who were mourning for the child, some of whom were probably professional mourners who were typically hired to attend a funeral. And you might be thinking, whoa, 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 what? A funeral already? Now, there would have been relatives there and likely neighbors already there, right? Your, your daughter is sick and, and people are coming over to seeing how she's doing and they recognize she's on her, her the last few minutes and they're going to remain there. But also, due to the quickness of, of uh, decomposition, you would have needed to get the funeral process going rather quickly, which is, explains why these professional mourners would have been there. You would have had relatives, mourners, neighbors, and so on. Now, Jesus responds to this grief. They're weeping and mourning for her, totally expected, totally natural. They haven't been with Jesus up to this point, hearing this encouragement that he's been giving Jairus. And they've been, they're, they're wailing, they're, they're mourning. Of course, the, the heart is broken, right? This, this girl who's right on the precipice of, at this time, would have been right on the precipice of, of a marrying age, the next two to three to four years. So her, in, in that sense, she has the whole, her whole life to look forward to. You know, another joyful milestone is right around the corner for this family. And now she's gone. So the heartbreak is understandable. But Jesus says this, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they all believed and bowed down in worship and everything went well. Verse 53, and they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. They didn't take Jesus's words as a joke or an indication that he was woefully ignorant. They, their laugh wasn't a jolly chuckle, like, <laughs> that's good. It was a laugh of derision. It was a laugh of condescension. It was a dismissive laugh. Jesus, I hate to break it to you, but uh, I know you're the miracle worker around here, a little more expertise in this area than I do, but uh, you can't overcome this. She's dead. And by saying that she's, 
sleeping. Come on. Come on. Now, why laugh and dismissal? Hadn't Jesus just raised a young man in the town of Nain and given him back to his mother? And in fact, you might be thinking, well, did they know about that? Probably so. Uh, in um, chapter 7, verse 16, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God, and God has visited his people, verse 17, and this report around, about him spread through the whole country of Judea and all the surrounding country. So Jesus can raise the dead. They should know it, but they are dismissive here. They don't fully understand what Jesus is saying clearly about this metaphor of sleeping. And, but in light of Jesus' power, this is, this is, they should have recognized it because in light of Jesus' power, a power that he's already displayed in a town 20 miles south in Nain, the child's state was temporary. It was like she was sleeping because just like a sleeping child, all Jesus had to do was go and wake her up. Time to get up. School time. Morning time. Time to get up. That's all he had to do. Well, Jesus is unfazed by this condescension. He is unfazed by it. And he's going to walk now into the presence of death itself. He's going to enter now into the home. Not sure exactly the layout, but she's, he's, she's there in the home. She's, he's taken only Peter, James, and John and the parents. So there are six of them, is that right? Peter, James, John, Jesus, parents, six of them. And they're there. And Jesus is now stepping into the realm of death. Death, the great enemy, the great equalizer, the thief of life and joy and happiness has crept into this little family. And Jesus is now going to step right in the middle of it. But he doesn't have to perform any kind of incantation. He doesn't have to dance around. What does he do? It's a school day. Time to go play. Taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. Mark's version tells us that he actually used the Amer an Aramaic phrase, talithakum, which literally means, little girl, arise. And so with a mere word, the creator, who has life in himself, now gives life to this dead little girl. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Death is the enemy it's unpredictable. It's no respecter of persons. It's the one thing that strikes fear into all of Adam's offspring because of its finality and the fact that you can never avoid it, even though Jeff Bezos is working really, really hard to avoid it, spending millions and millions of dollars in order to get uh, certain scientific elements in place to see if he can't be saved from death to tap into uh, scientific resources to see if he can't gain eternal life. It will find him eventually. I don't doubt that a billionaire can find some way to extend his life in a little bit, but if death will eventually come to him. And even if it doesn't come to him in old age, it can come to him tomorrow with a heart attack. Yet this man, Jesus Christ, has the power over death. Oh, that people would read and hear of the gospel of the Son of God who has come, who has power over death. Everyone's afraid to die. I don't care who you are. Everyone is afraid to die. I don't care how you cover it up. I don't care what you cover it up with. You are afraid to die if you're not in, uh, in Christ. Hebrews 2 tells us that clearly. You can cover it up with 
drink, you can cover it up with sex, you can cover it up with work, you can cover it up with uh, out of control spending, you can co cover it up with all kinds of medication, you can cover it up with all kinds of eating healthy and various kinds of exercise, but you are afraid to die. His problem is you just haven't gotten desperate enough. You haven't seen that clearly enough, so you don't see that Jesus is the only one who can save you from death. Well, he can, and he does. He, he steps into death now, and he takes this little girl by the hand, and her spirit is returned, and she gets up at once. And Jesus, incredibly practical here, instructs the parents to say something should be given her to eat because getting sick and dying and being raised to life, I think, makes you a little hungry. That's what I take from this. That's what I take from this text. On biblical authority, once you're raised, you got to have something to eat. you got to have a jello pudding or something to get that energy going back in through your body. So Jesus is addressing her practical needs. It's just incredible here. He is, he's addressing and taking care of the whole person, body and soul. In one fell swoop, well, expectedly, the, children's, the child's parents are amazed. And of course, right? Amazed at what Jesus has done. And this word amazed is, is often used in response to Jesus' miracles. But then Jesus actually says something unexpected. He says he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And there's a lot of debate uh, about why Jesus would do this. You wonder why he, he did it, because he... He didn't tell the woman with the hemorrhage to keep quiet. And he actually told the garrison demoniac to go and tell everyone that God had done for him. He didn't tell his disciples to keep quiet about the storm. He didn't tell the widow to, say, to not say anything about her son's resurrection. He didn't tell the man with the withered hand not to say anything. He didn't issue a gag order on all the people he healed in Tyre and Sidon, or the paralytic, or the leper, or the man with an unclean demon in Capernaum. So why here and why now? Well, again, there's a lot of debate First thing I think we need to notice is that all the ones I just mentioned, all those uh, healings and all those miracles, those were public. So practically, it's kind of difficult to keep those under wraps. This situation with the little girl, there were only a few people privy to this situation, so it had been easier, practically speaking, to keep this under wraps. But does Jesus have a deeper reason for keeping out the details from other people? Here's what I would argue. The reason Jesus didn't want the disciples or the parents to say anything is because the people mourning displayed their unbelief by their laughter. That's how I take this. The theme of this two stories is faith. And it's contrasted now with the unbelief of the mourners. Jesus did not want to provide them with detailed knowledge of the actual miracle because they had demonstrated they weren't really believing in Jesus anyways. Laughter can be, in Scripture, a sign and an indication of unbelief. So I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that that could be happening here. In the Old Testament and in Jesus' ministry, revelation is kept from people as an act of judgment. And again, these stories are meant to highlight the means by which people come become recipients of his power, namely by faith, simple, desperate faith. The woman believed and grasped onto Jesus' garment. The ruler, out of desperation, reached out to Jesus to heal his daughter. The parents believed and received their daughter back by resurrection. 
To laugh in condescension at the Son of God who has already proved his power over and over and over again was to demonstrate proud, self-sufficient unbelief, not desperate faith. It's the laugh of the unbeliever who doesn't recognize how desperate their situation is. It's the laugh of the person who you've tried to share the gospel with for years and years and years and just laughs at the silliness of a man on a cross because they don't see that in that cross their desperation is both exposed and fully satisfied all at once in a cross of a sufficient Savior who has borne their punishment, given them full righteousness, and been raised from the dead. So he is emphasizing here the nature of this faith and, and highlighting and juxtaposing it with self-sufficient unbelief. Now, you might be wondering, it would have been pretty hard to keep this a secret anyways, right? I mean, the people mourning, they know the girl is dead, and then she gets up and she walks out and been like, whoa, okay? They would have been spreading it around. And, and I'm not suggesting that the miracle wouldn't eventually have been discovered. In fact, Matthew even says, report of this went out through all the district. Nevertheless, I believe that Jesus wanted his disciples and the parents of the child to keep the details of the miracle private and not to reveal what had really happened in the house that day due to the unbelief of the mourners in order to juxtapose faith with self-sufficient unbelief. So the theme of this passage is actually a theme that we've watched unfold from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We are saved by faith, simple faith, looking away from ourselves to Jesus Christ. You know, you might be listening to some of the messages as we walk through the Gospels, and you might be saying, hey, Derek, give me some practical things to do after I hear these stories about Jesus. Sometimes the practical application is just see Jesus, just behold Jesus, just let the preacher preach and just listen about Jesus and let that encourage you. There are times when we need to get real practical and nitty-gritty, absolutely, but there are times when you just need to listen to the preacher preach Jesus and hear him proclaim the glory of the Son of God and just receive it and be encouraged. And that's what we're seeing here. We are saved by looking to Jesus. We see it by the story of the prostitute. We see it in the story of the centurion, that true faith is born out of desperation. You have nowhere to turn. You have nowhere else to turn for forgiveness. You have nowhere else to turn for resurrection. There's only one who's the way, the truth, and the life. Only one. You have nowhere else to turn for help. You come to Christ desperate. You come to Christ as the only one who can forgive you and raise you from the dead. And then when you come to him for that, you find in him complete sufficiency for all of your needs. You know, you do, you talk to your friends about the Lord Jesus, you talk to them about the gospel, and you wonder, do they need more evidence? Do they need more exhortations to repent and believe? Perhaps. But what they really need is to be desperate. They need to see their desperation. They don't believe in Jesus because they're not desperate. They don't see how desperate their situation is. And if you're here for the first time or you've been coming for the last few weeks and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ and you haven't repented of your sin and, and trusted in the Lord Jesus and believed in him, let me just speak to you honestly and out of a heart of love for just a moment. You have nothing without Jesus Christ. Absolutely nothing. Your wealth will soon be gone. Your health will someday fail. 
if not at age 75, perhaps even tomorrow. Your sin has created an infinite debt that you cannot pay. Your religious activities and good works cannot save you. Your soul is unclean before God. You are dead in trespasses and sin. That is your situation, whether you feel it or not. It is a desperate situation. The next major event in your life is the final judgment. That's the next big event. Write that on your calendar where you will stand before a holy God and he will judge you for eternity for rejecting him and his wonderful salvation. You are in an eternally precarious situation with nowhere to turn. No one else, no religion, no religious figure, no mantra can provide you with the forgiveness of all of your sins. All of your sins, but Jesus can. No one else can provide you with eternal life, but Jesus can. No one else can resurrect you from spiritual death, but Jesus can. No one else can provide you with an eternal inheritance that will never fade away, but Jesus can. No one can satisfy your soul with hope and peace and spiritual pleasure now and for all eternity, but Jesus can. Your situation is desperate, and we just pray that you would realize that Jesus truly is the merciful Savior who says to the desperate person, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And for those of us who are believers, our faith is weak and brittle and often frail because we don't recognize our desperation as we should. Isn't that what happened to one of the churches in the book of Revelation? They were considered sick and blind and naked. We're full of sin. We're utterly dependent upon God's mercy every single moment of every single day. We need Christ's wisdom. We need Christ's forgiveness. We need Christ's power. We need Christ's grace and forgiveness. We need Christ to move mountains on our behalf. We need him to fix that relationship over there and heal our, uh, heal our kids over here and save our children over there. We have nothing without Christ. And it's when we start to see that, we start to see the hand of Christ in our lives. So, so let's take this, these two stories of Jesus' power and that simple, desperate faith that goes to Jesus and to him alone in faith. And let's now go to Jesus and pray to him and pray to the Father in the desperation that we, are know, that we know that we are in and then knowing that he loves to answer those kinds of prayers. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do want to see clearly our spiritual desperation, our need for you in all areas of life, spiritually, physically. You even instruct us to pray for our daily bread, all the factors that have to come together for our very provision. But we are also spiritually poor, God, unless you grant us your spirit, unless you enable us to behold the glory of Jesus, unless you forgive our sins, unless you cleanse our conscience, then we are defiled and cannot see Jesus as we ought. So Lord, would you just open our eyes? Would you help us to see our desperation that we might reach out to Jesus with simple faith, grabbing a hold of his garment, knowing that he loves to say, do not fear, only believe, and you will be made well. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.